in the evening talk, I would take uh, the first um, suggestion that is with regard to the background influences to action and during the talk endeavour to weave into it one or two of the other suggestions that were uh, made. I just noticed on the notice board down, downstairs the uh, quotation which somebody had kindly cut out where it is said, put your whole heart into your work. And, um, and this uh, particular quotation is attributed to the Buddha. Um, I've never personally never heard or read this quotation from the Buddha before, um, but it's something he probably would have said anyway. <laughs> In this area of action and the background to the whole field of action, we often find ourselves questioning and asking ourselves both for our life and at a personal level and also in the social and um, political spheres, what is right action? And right action is a, a concept frequently referred to, of course, in the old texts, and it's one which we find ourselves exploring at different times in our life. And sometimes that shows itself when we ask ourselves, well, what should I do? What's, what's the right thing to do? And we find ourselves challenged and confronted. And often, too, we, we look for others, for help, for advice, to, to, in our own difficulties and confusion, to tell us what's appropriate, what's sensible, what one ought to do. And again, the variety of messages come from outside of ourselves, the variety of messages come from inside of ourselves, and when we get caught up in that, of course, it produces some kind of confusion, if not turmoil. This occurs, of course, both, as I mentioned, in, in the outer levels, in terms of political, social activities, as well as personal. And if we just look at some of the in terms of the outer situation, there's a strong belief in this world, yet there's a kind of adherence to the ideal of the opposite, that through action, through violent action, aims and goals can be accomplished. And so we look at the, the face of the world, we look at the tremendous degree of violence in every corner of this, of this planet, and we look, too, at the, the situation over centuries upon centuries, and certainly the situation of this century where violence has been used for widespread causes with widespread psychological motives operating, and we see the effect of it all. And one wonders sometimes, you know, are we as human beings truly developing, truly evolving, or are we just as uncivilized and as barbaric as we ever were and are people who have just gained access through science, through technology, to sophisticated barbarism? 
and there have been in the past and in the present, of course, those people, men and, and women, who through their, not only through their actions, but also through their words, have been the long-standing voices of protest, the voices of protest against violence, the voice of protest which, which speaks for non-violence. And I read just recently this qu quotation of uh, one um, Goering, one of Hitler's uh, right-hand people. And he, there's a quotation of his given during the uh, Nuremberg trials, where he says, all you have to do to get people on your side is to speak about patriotism, to create an enemy, that you have to protect your country and to regard people of, uh, who are protesting about that, the people who are pacifists, simply to regard them as, as people who betray you, people who are weak-minded. And if you present that kind of public image strongly enough, you will get people to believe in violence and act in violence. And we've seen that. We've seen it all over the, the, the face of our earth. And so sometimes our mind in, finds reasons and, and, and sensible reasons and intelligent reasons and well thought out reasons why violence is necessary while for the preparation for violence as we see also. But somewhere or other, deep down, perhaps there needs to be far more people, far more men and women who speak and advocate non-violence as an ethical issue, as a moral issue. As a woman said, a mother of two children said in, uh, uh, when asked about uh, the nuclear situation, she and the justification for this situation at the present, and she said, it would give me no peace of mind to send bombs into Russia to know that women and children and husbands were being killed in Russia. So in our, in, our, in our looking and in all the kind of theorization which can take place in our relationship to the world, there needs, surely there needs to be people who look and practice and apply non-violence. Not the non-violence of passivity, as Gandhi said, not the non-violence of withdrawal, but the non-violence which advocates it, which believes in it, which makes it in some way or other an action in one's life, an action through word, an action through the pen, an action through commitment. And it does have its influence. And one has seen in more recent times, of course, the tremendous upburst in, uh, in Europe and in, in the States towards the practice of nonviolence, not only as an ethical and moral issue, but also as a something of an intelligent strategy to communicate with other people. And it's quite extraordinary how there have been, and still are, these large numbers of people turning out in demon demonstrations, and they have been free from violence. And there's been a, a definite 
development of human beings quite distinctly different, I would say, from some of the violence which uh, was prevalent at time in the uh, anti-Vietnam period. And it has its influence. The fact that two major political parties in Europe, the uh, Labour Party in Britain and the uh, Social Democrats in Germany, say if they ever get the chance to be uh, elected to power that they will stop nuclear weapons, that they will, they will disappear from those two countries. And they are major issues and within the actual manifesto the peace movement has brought those two parties to that nobody else, the people who went out on the streets. And we look from the outer situation of action and the application of violence, but also it's how it is advocated, take the finding of ways and means which are alternative, the large number of workshops which take place in Europe, something which I'm involved in, towards the practice of non-violence. But it has to go much further than that. It has to come right back home to ourselves and our actual relationship to life. And the ways that we can develop in our own life a certain refinement and subtlety. And it's all too easy in life to justify violence, to justify aggression in, in speech, in word, in deed, in thought, rather than actually work with it as a, uh, a life principle. In, in that, it's now a relationship to our, to our relationship to action. There are, of course, the various motives in mind. And the motives in mind influence the action. And traditionally, the two motives which are at work have been defined or described as wholesome and unwholesome. Wholesome action is that which seeks to express something beneficial in this world, to actually make that a manifestation outwardly. And the other, of course, is its, is its opposite. And in our looking in our, our relationship to, to the forms of action that we actually engage in, we ask ourselves, which areas in my life can I develop and apply greater sensitivity? What's my, rela what's my relationship to the environment? What's my relationship to creatures? What's my relationship to animals? And it's so very easily, very easy for us to become so isolated from direct forms of action, we become so insulated, so much into our own small world, that the largest sense of life in action just, just fades away from us. And one of the ways that that sometimes shows itself is we spend so much thinking about 
what I should be doing, what my, what, where I am going, instead of thinking or trying to see in a broader way, in a, in a more vast view, what way ought this world to be going? And having that, that more expansive sense of oneself and the world truly being together. And to some degree or other, this is where our inner work and this opening out of consciousness becomes so, so important. Because if our consciousness is restricted, it is too small and too tight, correspondingly or relatively, the world appears too big. Too big. And the issues of the world seem enormous beyond belief. And so what happens, one feels small in size, the world fe feels correspondingly of enormous magnitude, and this inhibits action, it inhibits wholesome, clear, direct expression. And how many times do we notice this? We embark on an action. We say, this is something useful to do, something valid for me. And our energy gets going in that. And then somewhere along the line, as one moves through that action, the mind begins to shake. It begins to move. It, it, it feels uncertain, insecure. The action is wholesome. It's coming from a good background, good motivation. One comes to a place and it shakes. And it's too big. I can't go on. It's not worth it. It's not getting any, any, anywhere. The problems are of such an order that you can't overcome this, you can't overcome that. And the heart begins to, to waver and we find we get to that place the energy slips, the motivation slips, the action deteriorates, and it just, we fade away into obscurity. Sometimes we look at our life and we ask, what, what sort of things have I actually begun, which have a certain commitment in this, to this world, in some way or other, and have come to that place, and I've never got beyond it? And it's a peculiarity that in any kind of committed a action, and quite often in the beginning period of it, there is a certain ego satisfaction. You know, when one starts doing something, there's a pleasure in it, there's an enjoyment in it. And it may be considerably hard work, but it's fresh, it's, it's, it's vital, there's a, an, an urgency to it. And so a person begins their involvement in a particular project. That project may be a 10-day retreat, it may be a, a commitment to the peace movement or the women's movement, it, it, it may be to a particular work or creative activity, and there's a, there's a certain satisfaction and energy in exploring something. But the, the ego at some point or other may begin to fade. And it doesn't feel quite so good to do. It doesn't feel so exciting as, in, as 
invigorating. And it's that place, that point, that the testing comes. One of the, a personal example which I quite often use is doing these, uh, doing workshops and giving retreats in a, sim- a situation which in different ways would be f- uh, familiar to quite a few of you. One undergoes a certain kind of process, in this case a process of work on oneself, inner transformation. Then there comes invitations, please come and speak about meditation, about practice, about what you see or whatever. And for a period of time, several months, uh, a year, there's a lot of pleasure in it, a lot of, a lot of satisfaction in it. The feedback is very, is generally anyway, very, very affirmative, etc., etc. One goes here, one goes there. And after a few months and after a year, one has gone through that satisfaction, that kind of pleasure which the ego gets out of it. You know? And then at that point, point one comes to that place where it's service. Where, where the giving begins, where the letting go starts, where the letting go of opportunities and personal wishes to do this, to do that, to be in one place, to spend time with one's f- uh, family, to live in the nature, etc., etc., that's when the letting go begins. So as I say, there's quite often this beginning movement which takes place with the energy and then comes the service. Now in those times of that, of that action with that, with that um, background which uh, accompanies it, it's not only of course with regard to the obviously in overtly outer situations, it's also with regard to the personal life situations. The personal life situations of the personal relationship. And how that too is a, is a, a whole area of practice. A whole area in which, as it were, two of the basic elements, it seems to me, within the field of relationship is which so often does produce difficulties, is in the area of space and needs. And so quite often when there is friction and tension within the the personal relationship, which is a form of action, an action of communication between two people, quite often one wants more space and the other has the greater need for more connection, more time together, more communication. And so one finds oneself at times in one side of this dua- duality or on the other. Space and need, and how these two, within two human beings and all the action that takes place, can be reconciled. And, and if, when we begin to get a little sense of, the, of these things, we see that somehow or other, our personal life action, our social action and commitments, our, if any, political action and commitments, and our meditative action and commitments somehow are not different from each other in any way at all. 
And in this area of the personal relationships and the kind of action and the commitment which, which goes there, it requires, just as it does in any situation here, a real listening to each other. That sometimes the individual need, really needs more space. And to have the heart, the openness of heart, to find ways to address that. And sometimes in one is in a relationship, one's partner has greater needs for communication, for contact, for going beyond the superficial, to sitting and being together and talking together as, as, as friends in a close and affectionate way. And it's all too easy within the relationship life for two people just to keep missing each other. The contact is just superficial. And that need is such an important need so that the communication itself can go to a greater level of depth. And that's all part of that process really, isn't it? It's really part of that process of, of action and, and giving. Giving for each other. I just heard on the telephone today another example, illustration of of that kind of giving within the and the in the, within the context of action. A few hours ago, uh, Jamie rang from his uh, w with Jane from his mother's house in um, New York, and as you know, they. They flew that evening that they left here to, to go to New York. They went uh, to see directly his father, spoke with his father. And as the, each day has passed, his father is still there, still living. The life, the heartbeat, the pulse it, it, is still taking place. He hasn't taken any food for a, a week. He's on drip, he slips in and out from sleep to wake, from sleep to wake. And Jamie said, as you remember when he had spoken previously with his mother on the phone, his mother sa said that his father said, it's all right, I'm ready to go. And they had that letting go, and as so often happens, of course, a day goes by, and the fears and the, and the, and the holding begin to again resurrect themselves and the, the fear of going into, into the death con condition arises. And the family around the bed could feel that and, and, and sense that with, with the man. And then yesterday, Jamie said his father then began to, to open up again and speak about what he was experiencing. And he said to Jamie, he said, you know, Jamie, if I had your life philosophy, I know it would be much easier. And Jamie said, even with a good life philosophy, it's not going to be easy. And so he and Jamie were to talking, to talking together and his father opened up and uh, more of that letting go again taking place. His father once again renewing that 
relationship in a more clear and comfortable way to the, to the end process. And he said to, to Jane, who is not, as it were, a, a blood relationship with, to, to the family, he said to Jane, look, Jane, I don't know how long, how many days I have. Please, there's no need for you or for, or for Jamie to, to, to stay. I don't want to hold you here. Please don't feel that you are obliged to stay here for me. It's okay. And again, there's that, there's that commitment and that expression of, at the time in one's life when one truly needs one's family and one's loved ones ar around, there's that willingness to let go of one's own needs, even in the very last moment, so that one's child, one's son and one's daughter-in-law can be free to, to come home. Such is the, the quality of heart and uh, mind. And it's that kind of spirit in that, that, in that inner life and, that, and the awareness that, that comes out and the action that comes, one sees that, that what enables that kind of action and expression to have its continuity in life is this which we speak of so much together here, is this capacity to let go in order to be free to do. In our looking into our, ourselves and looking into just the flow of a situation like we have here, here together. Again, there is an expression of action which finds ways and means to, to follow something through, as, as you are, as you nearly all are. As together we go through a, a process and a journey together. And it's not unusual that one comes part way through that pro process and that the mind occurs, the difficulties arise, and one finds oneself, sometimes almost helplessly, latching on to something somewhere, fixing onto an issue or whatever. And that rhythm and flow of continuity, the continuity of the sitting and walking, the continuity of being with oneself, the continuity of a certain containment begins to dissipate. And the mind's energies and the focus can very easily just begin to fragment, begin to find some other interest, reading or writing or sunbathing or sleeping, or moving away from that original flow. Sometimes that's, of course, necessary and, and, and valuable, but is it such, is it one of those experiences in our life where we have begun something, where we are following something through, and then a few things have, arri have arisen and it's dissipating very quickly? And it's then really that our, that our practice really comes in. 
And and it's that kind of working with life and with action which endeavors as much as possible to bring it together, to keep it together. And of course, when, when one is in the middle of that kind of, kind of sit, situation, you know, the mind, again, doubts and uncertainty can arise, or the what's-the-use mind can set in. And that, again, takes the power out of us. And we see how this has happened in so many major movements, Where are all those people that were on the streets in the late 60s and the early 70s protesting? What happened to them? What happened to the, the numbers of young people in their, in their 20s who have a certain idealism, a certain vigor, a certain rebellion against things which they sense and know are unsatisfactory? And the time goes by and the person comes into their late 20s and then into their 30s. And somehow or other, that, that protest and that idealism and, and that concern somehow begins to dissipate. And it gets forgotten. They, I think today they call them yuppies. <laughs> and so then it's, it's, there's... A, There's a tremendous potency and power within this world that we live in, as it were, to impose itself on us so strongly that with, within that imposition, it's as though the world takes hold of us and forms itself into the way it wants us to be. And part of the struggle and part of the, part of the inner, inner work is not making one's action just to conform, but making the action which one's heart knows is true and right, regardless of anything else. And what stops us, as I was saying yesterday evening, all that stops us is the fear. Because within that change, and when we come to creating fresh action in life, which is a genuine, worthwhile, and truly a 10-day retreat mirrors our life. It truly mirrors our existence. That, with, that within the situation where one is endeavoring to make change, to liberate the heart into fresh action, one, what one sees, and these are the difficult periods where one, as some of you are, very distinctly and clearly breaking away from the old. The old analogy of the, of, of the egg breaking out of the shell. And certainly something about meditative processes and working in oneself is that kind of breaking out of a shell. And within that, there's so often there's a kind of transition period The movement away from the old, when one knows that's what has to happen, and all the rationalizations about it just don't sit well. 
But in that moving away from the old, what so easily happens is that the new in the universe simply isn't clear to one. One doesn't know what the new is, where it will lead. And so sometimes, as some of us have found, found in our life that it's been necessary to turn one's back on in order to move forward. And of course one has, you know, for all the different mixed motives that he probably had, this kind of historical illustration in Gautama Siddhartha himself. Moving away from. And sometimes that's part of, of that. And so there's sometimes there's this transition of this movement away from, and within that period, the whole of one's life can be extraordinarily difficult. There's an existential problem. Who am I now, now that I don't have this role? And sometimes in that giving up of a particular role, the ground is very shaky. And that transition period is the period of time between coming out of and coming into. Some people say during a retreat, say quite clearly and quite definitely, I need to create time for more practice. I need to create time to do more retreats. I need to create time to work on myself or whatever. And one sees it and one recognizes a certain necessity of that. And so for some that necessity is, is expressing itself in a particular way. A way which has somewhat of a removal from what is familiar. And some people have the time, have the opportunity, have a certain freedom already which can enable that to happen. But it still, of course, requires the action to make it happen. And similarly, in a living, any kind of living situation, the question always arises as, as it, one comes to the latter part of a retreat and the questions come up and yes, what about here, but what about the daily life situation? And so sometimes again, there's a certain mind is moving. Understandably it's moving, there's an, there's an anxiousness there, going from here to there. And one doesn't know what that will be like. One doesn't know how one will adjust or fit into a, a new situation. You know, one asks, does one do breathing meditation when one goes back? <laughs> if one thinks that's going to make any difference, one hasn't understood anything. It's like in our situation here, in our situation of, of, of being together. One, one could make it, I as whatever facilitator or whatever, could say, okay, let's make our day while we're here. We'll start, we'll get up at eight o'clock. 
and um, we'll play um, some rock and roll. <laughs> and then at nine o'clock, we'll have a half-hour sit. We'll bring a few armchairs in, you know. <laughs> we don't want to push ourselves too much. And, and then we'll, we'll pop, pop out the ice cream parlour. We'll all go down <laughs> there, whatever, in the afternoon. But we'll do a sitting in the evening twice a day, that will, because that's what daily life is like. We try to do it tw- twice a day like that. And what people may feel and go away, well, had a really, really good time. The ice cream was great. <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder how effective that could possibly be. And what makes it, if, if, if it's going to be effective, what makes it effective is the reality of it is that the total day is included that nothing is excluded in any way from practice, from the experience, from the heart getting in touch with life. And if anything is going to make any difference to life, to the quality of life and the discovery of being and action, it means that the totality of the day has to be explored from the day, the time that the day begins to the time we go to sleep at night, as we are doing here, it just takes different forms elsewhere. And it's that totality which is indispensable for all that's been talked about and explored together over these days. And as we see within that, it requires of us that kind of dedication, almost, a, almost I would say a ruthless dedication, which says, if I am going to be free and really know what being free is and all the action and love which can generate from that freedom, then one thing I have to know that goes with it, I have to learn what it means to do without I confuse myself and I, and I deceive myself if I think and view that I can have all and be free and clear in action. Because those two are irreconcilable. They just do not go together. And we cheat and deceive and mislead ourselves if we, if we conclude in any way that a, that a, a, a spiritual life, a clear, direct life is a life which doesn't have to include renunciation. And though the traditional forms of renunciation and letting go and giving up and decisively doing without may change because you and I are not monks or nuns, but the spirit of it never changes. the mind and our heart and our whole being in life truly cannot be free if we're cluttered and accumulating in whatever way that may show itself. And in that working and discovering of that 
freedom and that loving action which can, can accompany and does accompany that freedom. As I've mentioned before and I've mentioned several times, the universe and the beauty of it and the, and the joy of it and the, the, the mystery of it keeps touching consciousness. And it's not that one has to struggle to live in the present and struggle to, to be here and now. It's so expansive and nourishing and enriching that other seems dull in comparison. doesn't have the life and the vitality. And in that there is a wonder for all of us. So sometimes one comes to one of those very basic questions. What is one prepared to give up to know truth? May all beings live with awareness. May all beings participate in direct action. May all beings be free to see.